Ladies and gentlemen, it is another gathering of old men podcast. Myself, TP, Marlo is on the way. I also have a special guest tonight. We'll let him show up, go out, get the same rolling. But before we get into all of that, TP, NFL playoffs. NFL playoffs. In full swing. Before we get into the Attaboys, let's get straight to the what the fucks. Can we now stop talking about Josh Allen like he's Superman? Because I don't care what excuses you got. I'm tired of him. I'm tired of him. If he was if he was any other quarterback with darker melanin, we'd be talking about him differently. Mm-hmm. But he played like a black quarterback, so to speak. He is averaging yards per rush, has the talent in the team around him for the past three years. One year he had, this defense wasn't that bad either. So what? when are we going to ask the question, what is wrong with Josh Allen? It's one of those stories, man. We get to the playoffs every year, and it's the same story. He can't get it done. He tried to take the team on his back by running the ball, by trying to keep the ball away from the Chiefs, right? At the end of the day, it just ain't working. Stephon Diggs did not help. There was one play... I mean, it's a this a deep shot, right? It's windy, it's raining. I get it. The ball ain't hard to catch. I mean, the ball is hard to catch in that environment. But you got to help your quarterback out, man. You supposed to be the superstar wide receiver, make a play. And I'm gonna just be honest: the Bills were lucky to be that close in the game. So let's not blame Tyler Bass for missing a field goal. If you ain't ever kicked the field goal. And swirling wind, cold weather, wet weather, shut your mouth. We're not going to blame Tyler Bass for them losing that game. Because there's nothing that says, oh, they just scored. Y'all defense ain't stopped the Chiefs all night. There's nothing in my mind that's telling me that Pat Mahomes went down and got him three. And Harrison Bucker wasn't going to miss it. I promise you that. They get within 50 yards, it's good. There was a play in the first half where it seemed like everything was going to go Buffalo's way, and then it just didn't. It just, it just, it just, the whole game felt like the Bills were trying too hard and still failing. Josh Allen was trying too hard and still failing. When he fumbled that ball because he had been running, and we know when you just keep running as a quarterback and you take hits, you will eventually let it go. And he was saved again. Ball fumbled through the end zone when the Chiefs are about to go up 10 points. You're saved. (laughs) He was saved over and over in that game. And then we're going to sit here and say, Oh, it was a close game. Josh Allen just couldn't get over the hump. No, that game was not close. 
I'm sorry. If you actually watched the game, the Bills were lucky to be that close in the game, and it's not by anything they did. I get it. I get it hustling for the ball, but he fumbled the damn ball. He put the ball on the ground. He's been leading the NFL in interceptions. He he's a turnover magnet. He can't get it done. Now, are they going to move away from him? Absolutely not, because the option out there ain't much better. You're not going to find another Josh Allen, you know, where they're where, where they're going to be picking in the draft. There's too much riding on him. I'm gonna go I'm ahead sorry. and say it. I'm gonna I'm go ahead because everybody, nobody wants to say it. All these pundits on ESPN. Oh, Josh is gonna win a Super Bowl. No, when? Never. He Patrick never Mahomes win is not. He in his twenties. Pat is still in his twenties. Do y'all understand? As long as Patrick Mahomes and as long as Lamar Jackson are in the AFC. Josh Allen, C.J. Stroud, Josh Allen is the fifth best quarterback in the conference. Fifth best? Fifth best quarterback in the conference. Who, 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 who is he? So, so hold on. Fifth best. So who, who the top four? Pat Mahomes, Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Jackson, C.J. Stroud. Stroud. Pick one. Pick one. Because I feel like Trevor Lawrence will look up on AFC championship. No, he completely overrated. He's worse than Josh Allen. But my, my point is... They started the that. season 8-1 and one and missed the playoffs. I'm going to let you oh, let that sink in. I do it one better. You will never hear me give a Charger a compliment. So Justin we don't think Herbert, Justin Herbert is better than Josh Allen? Justin Herbert will be a better quarterback under Jim Harbaugh than Josh Allen. Hmm. That's an interesting take. They say Jim Harbaugh is a quarterback whisperer. He made Colin Kaepernick look like Superman. So we might be on the verge of seeing the Chargers get over the hill and still no, fail because they'll they... still be third. They'll, they'll still be third best <laughs> in the division. You're third gonna see a few years. You're gonna see a few years where the AFC West is gonna have three teams in the playoffs, and it won't even be fair. Hmm. It won't even be fair because we we got the architect. Of those draft picks, we just left the training staff with the Chargers. So we'll get good talent in the draft. But don't Easy. forget the, the the landscape changing a little bit in the AFC it East. Is. You know, they're bringing in a new regimen. Bill Belichick out. Again, more reason to believe that Josh Allen is not going to ever make it to a Super Bowl. You're making my case for me. He And you said pick four quarterbacks better. It's sad we didn't name Tua who led the NFL in passing. But I get it. He's in a gimmick offense. Finally, somebody that gets it. He is a system quarterback. And when you take that, that system doesn't work in the cold. You ain't even got to do nothing special defensively. It does not work in the cold. They were beat up. Let's be honest. They were beat up before the game even started. That, if I, when, when you look at their injury report, did you really give the Dolphins a chance to compete in the game? I ain't saying win. Did we think they would compete? The answer is no. Absolutely not. There was no bone in my body that was telling me the Dolphins were even going to put up a fight. And I said it on this podcast because they already soft. And then you're going to throw in some negative 17 degree weather. They're going to be even worse. They had two opportunities to lock up home field advantage. Two. And blew it. One before the injuries. One was before the injuries. They take 
So that is coaching. That is your system. It's not built for cold weather. And they was not going to win that game even if they had all their players. Home field matters. Unless you're the Bills. They weren't, but TP, they weren't going to win that game because their coach came in wearing a beanie. No, I'm, I said, the, I, look, I'm I, I still talking about the Bills, how y'all blow a home field advantage, but we know Pat Mahomes is a bad man. He don't care where he go. He's going to play good football. But the reason I say home field matters, see, the Texans traveling to Baltimore, it wasn't the cold that got us. Mm-hmm. That stadium was rocking. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely fucking rocking. And we quieted them a little bit in the first half. We kept them. You know what I'm saying? We kept them at a hushed tone. But when the play mattered, they turned up the volume. And we had more false start penalties than we in that game than we had in the previous four games combined. See, there's little stats like that that people don't pay attention to that can hinder a, a team's chance to win football games. But every yard counts. And when you're playing the number one seed, in their home stadium, and you can't hear your quarterback, bad things happen. Home Uh field matters. Miami losing home field made them have to travel and play in negative 17-degree weather. When y'all from sunny Miami, Florida, I don't care who, if you're there all year, there's a certain acclimation your body isn't going to get just going there for the week. Mm -hmm. That is, we're, we're talking about two totally sides of the spectrum. You're going from 80 to negative 17. That's almost a 100-degree change in weather. Your body cannot handle it. And I don't care what you say, oh, it's football. They should be used to playing in the cold. No. When you live in Miami and you have to go play in negative 17-degree weather, your body is going to feel it, whether you think you tough or not. And your coach wear a beanie. Miami, I don't, that offense can't function in cold weather. Tua cannot function in cold weather. Because in order to function in cold weather, you have to be able to play off script. You know what Tua can't do? Play off script. Playing off script almost got his career ended. Concussions, sitting in the pocket. They schemed the ball out quick for him. And teams sit on those short intermediate routes because that's where they hurt people. Get them little quick little catches and run for 80 yards. Well, when you can't do that, and I keep saying this, y'all keep wanting to put Tyreek Hill in the Hall of Fame. Please understand, it's some people that will put their hands on you and make you Uh, not want to play no more. I don't agree. There's some people in the Hall of Fame that they ain't had half the career Tyree Hill has had. He's got a ring. He's done it on the grand stage. He's a Hall of Fame. If he retired today, he would be in the Hall of Fame. He's going to get in the Hall of Fame 100%. I would say this. If I'm drafting three wide receivers, Rick don't even make six. Maybe not even seven. You know the type of wide receivers... You know what type of wide receivers I like? I like oh, some go get us some physical put listen. It's some dudes you can't put your hands on. Rick is one of them dudes you can put your hands on. And if you miss, yeah, he get a he get a touchdown. But if you put your hands on him, because again, I said 
Cincinnati figured it out. That's how they went to the Super Bowl. The Bucks figured it out in the Super Bowl. People have figured it out. He don't like to get people putting their hands on him. He do not like that physical contact. Great, great wide receiver. But when you're at that size and you got people 20 pounds bigger than you laying wood, it's different. And please understand, I know a lot of people question my takes. When I call somebody not this or not that or even trash, if I call a NFL player trash, he is trash of the best of the world. It's really not an insult. It is really not an insult. So don't come coming in my Twitter. Oh, I just no, no, said. Don't, no, don't, don't make me go back to last week and you call Terrell Davis a system back. No, don't make me do it. No, just again. But but we gonna we gonna we gonna we, we, we talking about right, we, we talking about right now. <laughs> we talking about right now, and we're one hundred percent looking at a system offense that did not work in the cold weather against an experienced defense that has speed to match your speed. See, and that's the problem. You can't you can't outspeed everybody because what happens when you run into a team that's just as fast as y'all? What happens What's going on, when an immovable force means no, an we, impenetrable We live right now. You logged in? Okay. Yeah, we're still doing it. All right. Hey, everybody. Malo, Malo had called. My bad. I thought I had muted myself. I'm sorry. Um, Getting back to that, though. it. So we've established Josh Allen is never going to win a Super Bowl. Probably not. I have to uh, ask. I have to ask my Magic Eight Ball, but the last time it told me all signs point to fuck no. <laughs> all right. So then we get to the game manager of the year, who finally we saw. Dear San Francisco Florida Die fans, E Forty, this includes you. Jamel Hill, this includes you. If Jared Goff comes into your house and beats y'all, please understand, it ain't no amount. Only thing that can save y'all is Twitter guideline rules. That's the only thing because I am going to go in for a long time. You have a game manager against a dude that already been to a Super Bowl. I can't even, they had the audacity to try and make Brock Purdy, brother of Chuba Purdy, an MVP candidate, a game manager. Meanwhile, Lamar Jackson. I saw, I saw some throws in that game that didn't say game manager. He you made know what? plays. He made, he made, some, he made some insane throws in coverage. He made some dangerous throws that made me question his, you know, his decision making. But he has the talent because I I saw it with my own two eyes. I saw Brock Purdy take apart <laughs> Green Bay defense. He threw a swing pass, ball nose down, and skipped it to CMC. We never said he was perfect. He ain't. He is not fundamentally sound. I thought at the very least he was fundamentally sound. And thanks to the announcers for pointing out 
that he was not fundamentally sound by not saying he was fundamentally sound. Every throw that was a bad throw, they made an excuse for it. Who was calling Every, that game? Was it Chris? What um, Co- wasn't it? Chris Collinsworth. Chris Collinsworth. And uh, I, I, I I don't even like watching Sunday Night Football with the volume on because of him. <laughs> but I don't need you. If anybody was going to apologize for Brock Purdy, that wasn't going to be the game to do it. That wasn't going to be the game to do it. That was not your put on your pom poms. Brock Purdy is not a game manager. That I seen it. I seen it. He didn't just manage mm-hmm. that game. He didn't. I'm sorry. You go right. back. Go back and rewatch the whole game. I watched the TP. I watched the whole game. I honestly thought. Green Bay, Green Bay had that game. If he's a game manager, then so is Lamar Jackson. Wait a minute. He ran one time all season. And now he, you know what? I'm not doing this with you, TP. If he's a game manager. Brock Purdy had this. Brock Purdy was down one of his major weapons in that game and found other receivers. Where is my violin? The ones that I... A game manager? I wouldn't call him that. If Brock Purdy is a game manager, then so is Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson hit 150 yards passing, and that's y'all MVP. Lamar Jackson made the basic throws. Game made difficult throws. manager. He did not make the difficult throws. Brock that's, Purdy didn't no, make the fundamental did. throws. I'm not. Lamar Jackson made no throw in that game that made me go wild. And this ain't even coming from a biased standpoint. This comes from somebody watching the game and looking at the details. Even that throw to Isaiah Likely for the touchdown wasn't even a good throw. I'm not going to do this It was behind him late. The only thing that helped him out was the fact that Isaiah Likely is eight inches taller than Steven Nelson. I'm not putting putting Brock in the same sentence with Lamar Jackson. What I'm saying Uh, is... if you're what saying he no, if you're saying he's a game manager, then yes, we're saying that Lamar is too. Oh man, we... well, I don't even understand where the problem is. Even if you were to call him a game manager, they both are in their divisional championship game on the backs of their defense. You're absolutely right, Marlo. I I don't know who to blame more. I don't know if I'm gonna blame the kicker for Green Bay or if I want to blame um, Green Bay's quarterback. Why can't I remember his name? Jordan, Jordan Love. Love. Um, I don't know if I want to blame Jordan Love because just like some fundamental throws Brock missed, oh, Jordan. Sir. Oh, he broke the cardinal rule. You had oh. wide open receivers you overthrew. Why? Right, I'm not just talking about that. Yeah, you don't throw back against across your body. No, nah, that was that was that was a cardinal sin. Oh, That's why they got that. Look, that throw was so bad. They was like, "Man, was that part of the script?" Because it was bad, like bad, bad. Just throw it away. You got timeouts. You got time. Why are you doing it? Yeah, like there was no desperation needed on that play. That was not desperation play. I just, I, I, I huh. was it part of the script? 
know that was part of the script. I, I will give his head coach credit for putting the game in his hands. But whoo. Um, but I tell you this, I think Jordan Love has proven that they made the right decision to move on from Aaron. Absolutely. Aaron this is year one. This is let's be honest, this is first year starting in the NFL, and he was in the playoffs. He was in the playoffs. So he wasn't just in the playoffs. I, I don't remember Aaron's first year starting. Was he in the playoffs? I can't remember. The Packers dominated that division for years with Aaron Rodgers. They made one Super Bowl, and outside of that, it was pretty mediocre. Like, they get there and then lose. Man, if we be honest, you you get a quarterback. You draft a quarterback. You get rid of a problem, and the, the ball keeps rolling. Like, the train don't stop. Chicago is still Chicago, no matter who they draft. If you draft Caleb Williams, when you have Justin Fields in the building, somebody needs to get fired. Point blank. I don't think nobody going to disagree with that. Caleb Williams. They're not going quarterback. Caleb Williams has shown that he is a drama queen. If the Bears bring that in their locker room, we're looking at another eight to ten years of them being mediocre at best. Penny. That boy from Washington. Y'all better not draft that boy. He's a more pro style quarterback. If he better be a third round draft pick. Ain't nothing holding them knees together but pig ligaments. Listen, he didn't have too many major knee injuries. That's a third, fourth rounder at best. That man got 80-year-old knees. Do not draft him. You, you don't draft him to play right away. Like That's the problem with the NFL right now. They have played these quarterbacks way too early. Well, none we of them know how to play in the NFL. We see what happened with Jordan Love. He got to sit, and then yeah. and look out, where he at. You know, they they started the season rough, but there's a learning curve to playing football in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And around the midway mark, he was the best quarterback of the season. He was the best quarterback for the second, you know, for the last seven games of the season. There wasn't a guy better. You know, Joe Flacco. <laughs> You know, played really well. You know, but outside of that, man. Jordan Jordan Love, man. Pre- pretty much was you know one of the top five QBs to end the season, right yeah. in that category. Now, if he rides that momentum into next year, and you know, don't throw across your body like that, like that was a terrible play. It was absolutely horrendous. One of the worst throws in a playoff game I've probably ever seen. When the game might be on the line, but it ain't desperation. I don't I don't want it to be lost on nobody that I got on the I got on Bill Belichick's internet and apologized to Joe Flacco in the first quarter of that game. 
And that tweet has aged, as TP says, like milk. Right. Mr. Seward, how are you doing today, sir? Oh, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. Um, coming in, coming to the stage, Mr. Herbert Stewart, esteemed HBCU hoops analyst. Is it okay for me to say analyst? Because I, you know, in this new media, people prefer different things. Man, I'll take that. That's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so this podcast, and we are trying our best to get to basketball season, but for some reason, the NFL like to keep drama going, so we we get stuck in the NFL. But thank you for coming to the podcast. I got to start off everything because I've been watching stats, and I, I like guys that put up points. And the kid from A&T, I need to know if he the truth. Mr. Glasper, yeah. Um, well, first, thank you for having me on the show. Um, this is, I'll just say that since I've been in this space, the the love and attention that I've gotten for covering, you know, HBCU hoops is something that, you know, it's a passion of mine, you know, growing, being a DC kid, you know, growing up in, in the DC metro area, basketball is kind of second nature. Um, particularly prep and collegiate basketball. So um, the fact that I get a chance to, to you know, use my platform to cover HBCU hoops is, is pretty special being an HBCU product. Um, yeah, the Glasper kid is the truth. <laughs> um, the one thing, and, I, and I'll just, I'll preface this by saying uh, that, you know, A&T's had some really rough spots this year. You know, injuries injuries really hurt them a lot. Um, but the bright spot for that squad this year has been that backcourt and Glasper. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, man. To me, he's uh, he's one of the more prolific scorers in that conference, and he's proven to be uh, a really, really good offensive, you know, weapon uh, for them. Not just in the CAA, but just in mid-major basketball. Um, he's, I, I mean, I. I mean, if you watch his game, uh, he can score at all three levels. Um, he's extremely hard to stay in front of for guards. Uh, he can pretty much get into the lane whenever he wants to. You know, he really puts pressure on bigger guards that have to guard him. Smaller guards, um, there's not much of a difference there, uh, primarily because his, you know, his perimeter game in terms of his shooting uh, is really effective and it keeps defenses off balance. So, you know, from what I've seen of him and his backcourt mate, his the name of the backcourt mate, you know, kind of escapes me right now. But, you know, that tandem has been extremely effective in, in CAA play. Um, it's it, it's literally been the difference between um, you know, them having a really miserable record going to CAA play and them being where they're at, which is four and two. Um I think ultimately, um, you know, Coach Woods landing those getting landing that guy was something that I personally didn't foresee. But at the same time, um, he's doing a really he's doing a quality job getting kids there to buy in to what he's trying to do. So you can see it, you know, in terms of the way the offense is structured. You can also see it 
in the way kids execute. You know, there are a couple of clips we did on our show, um, you know, for HBC uh, Nightly. Uh, that's a that's a show that we, you know, we normally cover everything from football to you name it. Um, the ball movement that you see in that program right now is excellent. You know, kids are really grasping how to play offense the way Coach Woods wants to play offense. Um, and that's where foundations are set. So, I mean, I'm really excited to see them progress, not just through this year, but, you know, hopefully they can keep that backcourt in the full, you know, in the offseason going into the next season, into the next recruiting cycle. All right. So, so do, you, do, you, do you think he's going to come out this year? Uh, I don't think he's going to come out. Uh, I don't think, and and mind you, this is, you know, this is a fan speaking <laughs> that's looking at <laughs> looking at this and and not really, you know, taking into consideration with kids here on the on a regular basis from you know the circle circle around them. But if I were to, you know, really look at this and assess whether he should come out or not, nah, he's definitely got he's definitely got a lot of time to grow, you know, and to really refine his game. I mean. From a skills aspect, his game is ridiculous right now. Um, and like I said, he's got a lot of tools in his offensive bag. It's defense that for, you know, for a lot of kids at the college level, you know, Mr. Glasper included, that is a challenge. And, you know, for anybody that's coming out, you know, going to, you know, playing college basketball and playing basketball at the NBA level are two completely different animals, particularly defensively and physically. Um, you know, I think a lot of things that we see at the college level, uh, particularly when we got guards that don't necessarily have the freedom of movement that you have in the NBA offensively. Um, you know, we try to, we tend to, you know, equate one with the other and, and the two games are kind of, are, are pretty different. You know, you see different types of defenses. You see, there you know the rules kind of are tailored to that style of play at college level, as opposed to the freedom of movement and freedom of offense at the NBA level. So, I think a lot of times when we look at college kids, you know, we'll look at intangibles like length, size, quickness, and upside. That's a that's a really really you know favorite word amongst NBA guys is upside. You know, that's you important. have. Most important, you know, you have, you might have a kid that is extremely skilled offensively, but may not have the measurables. So the potential upside of that, you know, of that, you know, player going into league may not necessarily be the one of the guy that, you know, has the five-star measurables, but doesn't necessarily have the production at the college level. So it's something that, um, you know, we tend to, we tend to really overemphasize, you know, collectively when we look at kids coming out or we take a look at a kid that's saying, oh, okay, this kid's going to come out. That kid isn't going to come out, you know, and sometimes that doesn't fit the template. <laughs> so yeah. it really depends. But in regards to the college game and what, you know, uh, Mr. Glasper is doing in comparison to other HBCU guards, he has been lights out this year. I, I, I have him, 
you know, he's definitely among the best HBCU guards I've seen so far this year. Um, and that includes a, that's some, that's some pretty rarefied air this year. Um, Marcus Dockery at Howard is really good. Uh, Jamari Thomas at Norfolk State, that dude's a killer. Transfer from UNCW. Um, uh, you got CJ Hines at Alabama State. Uh, you know, Chase Adams at Jackson State, that guy's really solid. PJ Henry at Texas Southern. Um, there, you know, I would say Zion Harmon at, you know, um, Bethune Cookman, if he can actually stay on the court but that's a whole nother story. Um, yeah, man, there's some talent. And, you know, I haven't, we haven't even talked about, you know, Tennessee State. You know, I look at, you know, E.J. Bellinger and, and no guys. got to get there. Yeah, E.J. Bellinger's, you know, that roster from a talent perspective, you know, for HBC talent is ridiculous. Um, even though, you know, even though the record doesn't really belie it right now, they're, to me, they're still in the mix to, you know, make a run at the OBC type regular season yeah. title. So it's, yeah, there's a lot of really good talent um, at the, you know, playing amongst HBCs right now. We haven't even talked about Division Two or NAIA. Um, I mean, you got a squad at the NAIA level, level Langston right now. That's, to me, um, they're probably the best squad in all of HBC basketball. Um, they're 17 and 0. Uh, ranked number two in NAIA, and they are a legit national championship contender at the NAIA level. So I'm um, about to do something completely unprofessional. FAMU, Tiffany Sykes, you need to take a look at that coach at Langston. Continue, sir. Well, I'll I'll just say this, man. Yeah, I, I mean, I look, we're not just not just Chris Wright, but that entire staff. Um, and for folks that are listening to your podcast that aren't familiar with Chris Wright or Langston, um, Chris Wright, this is not the first, this is not his first go round in really taking a program and rebuilding it in his own image. You look at Talladega, what he did at Talladega College. Mm -hmm. um, the last time, you know, his last year coaching at Talladega, they were in an NAIA national championship game. And, you know, those, Talladega squads under, you know, Chris Wright were ridiculously good. Um, he has a knack for recruiting. Um, honestly, I'm extremely surprised that nobody at Division II or Division I um, level has picked him up yet. Um, personally, I was pulling for Alabama State to pick him up, but we got a good, we got a good one in Tony Matlock. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it you know, it boggles the mind that nobody has knocked on his door yet and like backed up, backed up the Brinks truck to get him on there uh, to to really get there. And I could see them. I mean, fam, you making a move like that would be great. I think that would be a home run, given where the men's basketball program there has been at. Ooh, um, you have no idea. Yeah, yeah, I've 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 watched that from afar. And I, um, I'll just say this about Florida A&M's program. And this, unfortunately, is kind of the end product of what um, some HBC programs have to deal with. You know, it's uh, a lot of times football, you know, in South, particularly in the South, football's king. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't have the right people in place, 
uh, to build a program, it could be really magnified. And that's that's not a knock on the previous coaching staff that was at Florida A&M or anything like that. It's just that sometimes when you don't have the pieces there and, um, you know, winning is hard to come by, it's really magnified. It's something that, uh, you know, for for a school of that stature and anybody that's seen the facilities there, they're, you know, they don't have a facility problem. That's an ex- excellent venue to play at. You know, they've got weight facilities that are really, really good. Um, the basketball facilities are, you know, are pretty good, you know, particularly as it compares to SWAC. I mean, I, I look at our own places at Alabama State, new facility at a- Alabama A&M, which is yeah. really, really nice. Um, it, yeah, I just don't I, – I think it it's going to come down to who you hire. And, you know, when we talk about college basketball, particularly amongst HBCUs, who you hire is of paramount importance because it's, you know, the whole dynamic for building a, a, a winning culture and a winning program is a little bit different than it is HBCU football. You see a lot of the drama and, uh, you know, a lot of the other dynamics that are there in terms of uh, coaching hires and, and that. But yep. basketball. I don't, if, I, I don't know if I agree. I think I think if you want to have a winning program, you got to have a leader, and that leader starts with the head coach. In basketball, football, baseball—you got to have a strong leader, a leader of men. You know, well, that's the you know you know if it's women's sports, but either way, they have to be a leader. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with that. What I'm saying is, is that in order to identify a leader that's going to build a program, you have to be able to have somebody that can recognize that Mm. and you know you I mean you can really tell which athletic departments you know have invested into that um at you know at the HBC level Mm -hmm. and you know D1 level and who had um I'll I'll, you know I'll use Alabama State for an example um you know Lewis Jackson you know alumni probably would probably you know arguably one of the most famous basketball players in that program's history um, got to a point where he left the program, and the first guy that we we snagged was Mo Williams, who's ironically mm-hmm. doing a really good job at Jackson State, but it wasn't necessarily a fit, simply because you know from a recruiting standpoint, there are challenges that he had there. You know, kids weren't buying in. Whatever the reason was, uh, they decided to go into another direction, and um, ultimately, when you have you know, the option to go into another direction. You know, we when Alabama State was, you know, choosing, looking at other coaches, uh, Chris Wright was there, obviously. Uh, Fred Watson down at Miles, who has an impeccable track record at the D2 level with Miles and SIAC play. Um, and Tony Matlock. You know, Tony Matlock, you know, if you know his background, you know, he was on those Memphis, you know, on those Memphis squads that mm-hmm. brought in whole bunch of talent um it it says a whole lot and I, I was really impressed with the way we went through that process um if you take a look at the MEAC you know the MEAC from top to bottom um you'd be hard-pressed to find a better core of coaches at the mid-major level than than the MEAC right um 
what Kenny Blakeney's done at Howard, uh, what Lavelle Moten is doing at North Carolina Central. He's been a face of that conference for a long time. What Robert Jones is doing at Norfolk State. Um, you know, Kevin Broadus, even though they're kind of, Morgan State's kind of having a down season this year. Uh, he's had success there. Um, Coach Crofton down at University of Maryland, Eastern Shore, he's building something really, really extraordinary down there. Um, and he's doing it in a way that, in a place that is extremely hard to win at. Anybody that's, you know, been to Maryland, Eastern Shore, great campus, lovely place. But recruiting there is hard because you're on the Eastern Shore and you're on the outskirts of, outskirts of the recruiting, you know, area that you need to be in. Um, yeah, it's definitely something that uh, it, it it's it, it's a paramount hire, you know, and it's something that's a little bit different. Yeah, you you want your coach to be leader of men, but at the same time, they got to have the chops to do the job, the X's and O's part of the job, to re the recruiting part of the job. You know, um, kids got to be attractive to the, you know, to the playing philosophy that they got. So, excuse me, that has a lot to do with, that has, you know, and it's even more magnified in basketball than it is in football, in my opinion, because if you can recruit, it only takes one or two recruiting cycles to turn it and turn everything around. Especially with the transfer, especially with the transfer portal. North Carolina AT is a perfect example. Okay. Before the injuries, you know, hit with those guys, um AT was, you know, they were they were things were looking up for those guys in terms of looking forward to CAA play this year. Um, of course, the injury bug hit those guys with all the post players getting hurt. You know, and they still, you know have an extremely serviceable backcourt, which has turned into a, a really potent backcourt. You know, that's a really good foundation for, uh, you know, going forward in the CAA. Um, I look at Hampton. Hampton has some pretty young talent there. However, I think the pieces there have to fit more. And I think it's going to be really incumbent upon that staff to you know, really hit the ground running when it comes to the portal and just identifying talent that's going to fit into that system, you know, in a specific way. Um, CAA is the kind of conference that, you know, there's a very, there's a very heavy emphasis on fundamental basketball. Um, you don't see a lot of up and down in that conference unless you're Charleston. <laughs> I mean, Charleston is those guys are ridiculously good. Um, but you don't see a lot of up and down in that conference. You know, just about everybody in that conference from top to bottom plays tough half-court defense. You know, they run, you know, really intricate half-court sets. They rely on those sets. They don't necessarily rely on a lot of pick and roll. Um, you know, and depending on who you hire, you know, it can be the difference between flourishing in that conference and or not. So, it, it, you know, I think that really, again, the hire is important, but the ability to identify a coach that's going to be able to build a winning, winning culture is really important, you know, and it's, you know, like I said, the margin of error in basketball is a lot less than it is in football, in my opinion, because 
you can have a really bad recruiting class and not necessarily recover. You know, especially if you have a if you have a you know administration that's really not forgiving. You know, for putting together you know putting together a season that just isn't really an attractive way to play basketball. Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't really seen much cultures, you know, at the HBC level that are like that. Um, most of them that I've seen are pretty patient because the guys they hire are already quality. But yeah, that's that margin of error there is, um, it can be really minuscule at times. It just depends on who you hire and when. You know, I think I would I would agree with you on that because I say I see basketball as being a more intimate relationship between the coach and the players because it's not so many of them. Like you look at a college football team, there may be a hundred kids, fifty on scholarship, bunch of walk ons. There isn't, and then there's a lot of coaches, maybe thirty thirty coaches. Look at basketball, there's not as many coaches, not as many players. So yeah, the I, I would agree with you. The margin of error is very small. Yeah, so absolutely. I'm about to because my HBU HBCU experience is through my association with Marlowe and FAMU. Um, the AD. This is just as an example, so don't jump on my Twitter. But the AD at FAMU at this point can't address the basketball issue because she has another major issue that she has to address. And the manner in which she addresses it <clears throat> is such, it's so much smoke there that the wrong spark in the wrong location and it's going to be a firestorm all over again. Yeah. Once I think once she gets through this storm, these dark clouds, then she'll be able to address the basketball situation because the women's program, she she has hired a coach. The coach is in, a, in her first year. They're making strides. So that has been addressed. But the men's program is, is at some point, is going to have to be addressed. But I understand that it won't get addressed soon. Yeah, I, I think... Um... Wow, I, I mean, we've we've been I, I mean we've been on the front end of this, of this whole thing with Florida A and M and their coaching, you know, process for hiring a new coach. Um, to be honest with you, I think sometimes, man, you you know, as fans, we really don't appreciate the challenges that come with being an athletic director, and. Me personally, um, just looking at it from, you know, a player's perspective or, you know, a coach's perspective, whomever, you know, whether that coach is already there or that coach is considering that job, um, all of those things, all of those things are a factor. You know, if you get hired into a situation where your AD is, you know, kind of going to be up against the wall, you know, before you even get there. You know, you're already behind the eight ball when it comes to recruiting. You're already behind the eight ball when it comes to trying to do specific things to build program culture there, whether it's facilities, whether it's building recruiting relationships with coaches in the area or AAU organizations in the case of basketball. Um, it, 
I mean, I look at the Florida A&M situation and it, it's a real cautionary tale to me because mm. yes, you want strong alumni. Yes, you want that alumni to be very vocal about um, things that are going on uh, with pretty much any af- aspect of your athletic department for your revenue sports. But you don't want that entity to be a, a disruptive force. And from what I see, um, you know, the passion is there, you know, and nobody's not really denying that. I mean, as HBCU fans, we're all passionate and we're all very, you know, very engaged in making sure that our programs can put their best foot forward, but at the same time, sometimes you got to let folks do their job and whether that is for better or for worse, you have to let folks do their job and then you have to deal with the results of that job. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, to me, if I'm a coach, a basketball coach or a football coach looking at a potential at the FAMU job, the question I'm asking myself is, one, is it going to be conducive for me to build a winning culture there? And this is not a knock on facilities. This is not a knock on the ability to recruit because all of those things come with, how can I put this? All of those things come with the safety, you know, with the safety blanket of knowing that your athletic department and your alumni and your administration are all on the same page when it comes to your their expectations of you on the job and their support of your support, which is in this case, the athletic director. Um, yeah, that's, that's something that when it comes right down to it, any coach that's looking at situations like that, you know, it's running through their mind. It's like, all right, if I get in this situation, how effective, you know, is my athletic director going to be? when I ask them something. How effective is my administration going to be when I lay something out, whether it's resources, whether it's the ability to upgrade facilities or make a specific request for upgrading facilities, how effective are you going to be? And that's something that is going to be, that's going to be a real issue for Florida a and until this immediate situation is straight. So um, just from a, you know, as a hoops head looking at it, as a basketball guy looking at it, it's, yeah, you got to put it on the back burner, but it's not ideal. I mean, I look at, I I see a comparable situation that was, um, was actually South Carolina State uh, when Coach Matlock left for Alabama State. Um, I think South Carolina State handled that extremely well. For the timing, Coach left Matchlock, Matt, Matchlock, Coach Madlock. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, you're good. Um, he left like at the very end of the recruiting cycle, so they had to scramble, and you know, and found an extremely good candidate in Coach Martin. He come came over from Kansas State, and he had initial really really initial rough first season but you can see the the foundation that he was laying there. 
um, in terms of how he wants his kids to play. What's um, his first name? Uh, I think it's Lonell Martin, but let me, I had to double check that. Okay. Okay. Don't quote me on that. Cause okay. last, you know, have, have an XV blown up with the wrong name. No, um, no you're good. You're good. <laughs> yeah. But you know, he, he was under, um, Jerome Tang's, uh, uh, staff at Kansas state. And, um, I mean, from what I've seen in that program, it was a solid hire. You know, it's, you know, we still have a lot to see in terms of how he recruits and how he builds that program. But, you know, from what I've seen out of that squad this year, uh, they've been solid. You know, obviously there's still things that they need to build on in terms of recruiting. But for MEAC play, they've been extremely solid. You know, they just, you know, beat, you know, no climb to central um in Orangeburg, which um anybody that's that knows MEAC basketball, North Carolina Central is always gonna be a tough out. You know, Moton, you know, Lavelle Moton has really built that program into what, you know, they're I like to call them the flagship of the MEAC, them them in Norfolk State. Um, because the caliber of coaches that are there have been just they've been phenomenal for that conference. Uh, again, it's one of those situations where you look up every year and you're extremely surprised to see those guys still there, which is great for HBC basketball for me. Um, so, because... And I don't mean to cut you off. A quick question. Because there are so many, and specifically MEAC schools, that are in that Maryland, D.C. area, Virginia area, do they benefit the same way like a Florida uh, well, school, like Florida a Florida A&M does in football where you have so much talent in that area, your third-level talent can be quality players at the HBCU level? I think that's a very good question. I think for the MEAC, the potential for that is there. I think – particularly for the D.C. metro area schools that are in close proximity to that region, whether we're talking about Howard um, at the CIAA level, Bowie State, we're talking about Morgan, Coppin, although um, you're also talking about the Baltimore City, you know, Baltimore County, Baltimore City, Baltimore City area was kind of an extended um, portion of that. Norfolk State, and this is something I look at Norfolk, um, and Hampton, and in their own right, I mean, you're in the backyard of Boo Williams right there. Uh, Boo Williams is Hampton-based. Um, South, you know, Southern Virginia, the 757, South Side Virginia, has a lot of basketball talent in its own right, from Richmond down to the Carolina border. Um, I look at North Carolina Central. Um, those guys have really built a brand smack dab in the middle of Tobacco Road. And if you, I mean, if you really think about it, it's not just the big schools. You're talking about Carolina, Duke, obviously, North Carolina State, but you also have competition from the other smaller schools that are in that state. That's a lot of, the state of Carolina, North Carolina is, I mean, to me, it's a recruiting madhouse because you've got so many schools in such a small 
area in such a small state, not a small state, but in that state where recruiting within the state is a challenge, particularly for HBCUs, Division II schools, et cetera. For the D.C. metro area, it's a little different because of the amount of talent that leaves the area. And I think that's the key right there is retaining talent in the area. Um, D.C. metro area has, you know, has its own, um, obviously there's their own challenges. Big programs there, yeah, you got University of Maryland, you got Georgetown that are big brands. Um, George Mason, um, they're doing extremely well this year with Tony Skin. They're recruiting exclusively for the area. If you look at that roster, that roster is a DMV you know, roster from top to bottom. I think what Kenny Blakeney is doing is really, really good. And he's not only attempting to recruit high schoolers from the area, but he's getting a lot of transfer portal kids come back home. And I think for HBCUs at the D1 level, uh, the transfer portal is going to be really important because um, a lot of times until your program gets to a specific level where kids and those relationships with AAU orgs and things of that nature are starting to pay off in the type of kid that you get in the program initially, the portal is always going to be an option to get really seasoned and experienced players. Um, like I said, I look at Howard, I look at what Larry Stewart is going to have to start doing at Coppin. Um, he's having a kind of a rough first year back, but knowing the legacy that he and Turquan Mott and those guys represent there, um, they're going to be recruiting Baltimore, Baltimore City head, you know. And for those programs like Morgan and Coppin, recruiting within Baltimore, Baltimore County, and that public basketball, you know, public school basketball system where there's a lot of talent, I think that's going to be key for them. Um, I look at, again, I look at Howard uh, at D1 level, and although they've got some other challenges in terms of, you know, academic challenges, not challenges for the school, but for players that, you know, when they, what they recruit and the standard of grades that they have to meet. Um, I still don't see that as a big deal because there's a lot of talent in the city. There's a lot of talent in surrounding counties. Like I can only just imagine if Howard focused on retaining talent from PG County, Montgomery County, um, Fairfax County on the, on the Northern Virginia side. There's just a lot of talent. I mean, the fact that he's, that Blakeney has been able to pull kids from the WCAC, for example, which is to me, arguably the, one of the best high school conferences in the country year in and year out, um, where you got Gonzaga, Paul VI, those guys, you know, that's legit division one talent all the way up and down the, you know, down the high, the high school roster of that conference. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, for us as HBCUs, I think being out there and being seen in those recruiting circles is half the battle. Uh, you know, Ooh. so you yeah. just you you just touched on something, and I I will be remiss because every HBCU expert I bring on this podcast, I always talk about the business 
was, of HBCU. I was just about to ask him. So Ooh. I am just to give you some heads up. We never focused that much on HBCU sports until I was informed of the SWAT media deal was not what I thought it was. <laughs> so, so everybody, I'm gonna recap it real quick. I was in a Twitter stream. They said the SWAT dispersed one million dollars. My PWI education meant, oh, every school got a million dollars. Cool. No. no. That was not the case. Yeah. When I found that out, I then took what it cost me to advertise in football games and HBCU games. And then I got pissed off. <laughs> Man. So let me let me just say let me just say this. And this is something if you if you've ever watched or listened to uh HBC nightly on a regular basis, this is this is par for the course. And I think me personally, I think um HBCU institutions are unique in the sense that they have to make a lot of financial decisions athletically that other schools don't. Okay. There, there are certain considerations, even at the division, you know, at the FCS for football or division two level. Yeah. And probably a little bit less so at the division two level. There's a little bit more balance there. But Definitely at the Division One level, there are a lot of things that, particularly for for state land grants, that we have to consider, um, and that has a direct impact on how we go about recruiting, how we go about funding for you know facilities, how we go about prioritizing, um, you know, media deals. And how we go about prioritizing, you know, how to monetize our content. And the thing about it, we've, I mean, to say that we we beat this horse into the into the grave is an understatement. But I think the biggest thing for us, and, and this goes out to, you know, conferences that um more so more so conference leadership and athletic director, athletic leadership understanding that you have to be very proactive and you have to be very creative in terms of creating avenues of revenue for athletic departments, um, creating ways of cashing in on probably the biggest recruiting tool that HBCUs have, and that's the culture around sports and, and around athletics in general, because that in itself is a is a is one of the biggest marketing tools that we have. Um, uh, besides basketball, I'm a band hit. Okay, marching band. I marched at Alabama State when I was there. You know, I wasn't always. You know, uh, you know that was my thing instead of playing basketball. But we had this discussion about that platform and what ESPN is doing was doing with the national championship you know, first national championship for marching bands. And folks are like, okay, well, why is it? It's like, dude, um, that's one of the biggest marketing tools that schools have that have a really viable band program. Um, and all of that ties into um, the athletic fan experience for HPCs. You know what I'm saying? So 
even with basketball, even though that's to a lesser extent, you know, with basketball, because the environments are different. Venues are, I mean, it's the same thing. If you've ever been to Club Corbett down to North Carolina A&T when, when it's packed, you know, you ever been uh, to McDougal, you know, down to North Carolina Central or Eccles when it's packed during MEAC season, those are some pretty impressive basketball venues to walk into and experience a game. Um, I mean, the same thing can be said for some of the SWAC schools. Uh, you know, the Dunn Oliver Academy at Alabama State, you know, when Alabama AM gets there, you know, that's a fairly, you know, that facility still looks like it's brand new, even when I was in school there. You know what I'm saying? It's a very impressive facility. Um, I think the biggest thing that people really need to understand about the challenges that we face in terms of actually making our brands profitable in athletics is that particularly for public schools, we're already operating behind the eight ball, quote unquote, because that resource, you know, allocation debate is, you know, that never comes up in the conversation when we talk about athletic budgets or we talk about things that we can allocate to marketing for athletic programs or things of that nature. You mean like how Florida State was able to, Florida trustees was able to approve a loan from the school to the athletic program, but if FAMU tried that, it would meet with a train to stop yeah, it? Exactly. <laughs> and and I think, and the thing that I think people need to understand, particularly folks that aren't necessarily familiar with some of the challenges that HBC um, schools go through, public HBCs, is that that old money is never really talked about. And that old money has had a cumulative effect in terms of how we view and how we execute specific things when it comes to managing you know, our programs. So, I mean, good example, um, state of Maryland, uh, HBCUs had to, you know, had to go to court and won, uh, I think to the tune of 300 plus million dollars, um, you know, just for in general funding, not, you know, things targeted for athletics or anything like that. We're talking about general funding for that the school could use at its discretion. And the crazy thing is, or rather not the crazy thing, the sad thing is, is that if you look at just about every state, every state that has an HBC land grant or state university, it's going to be the same thing. Tennessee State's going through the same thing. You know, Alabama State is taking a look at whether or not Alabama State and Alabama A&M have, a, you know, have that type of right. Jackson State is going through the same thing. Southern University is going to probably go through the same thing. Same with Grambling and so on and so forth. So, it, you know, I want people that um, are looking at things kind of superficially from the program level. And, you know, you look at how kids recruit and how, you know, how kids consider schools, all of those things trickle down and, and it manifests itself in terms of how programs go about recruiting, how programs get negative recruiting, how negative recruiting affects programs. Um, and HBCUs, unfortunately, are kind of at the brunt of that when you hear about negative recruiting, you know, particularly when it comes to football, 
basketball, revenue sports. Um, you know, you, you get a kid on a visit and, you know, that kid may be on a visit, might go to Duke University or might go to North Carolina A&T, North Carolina, um, then turn around and go to, um, you know, do a visit at a CIAA school or do a visit at a SIAC, SIAC school. Schools got nice facilities, but even those facilities aren't really in comparison to the other places that they visit. And that's not because, you know, HBCUs are doing it wrong. It's because that, you know, the resource to gap is still there. And that's something that is never, ever talked about, at least not talked about in the, in the context of what that actually translates to in terms of what institutions can do and what they have to consider to keep the doors open, to keep the athletic programs running. Like a good example of that is, you know, how basketball teams schedule during the season, you know, for, for playing games. You look at, uh, you know, you look at records, for example, look at the SWAC this year. And on the surface, folks will look at the records, everybody, everybody, everybody in the conference is like, okay, there's not, there's only one or two squads that are at 500 or have winning records in the SWAC. You got 10 games that they had to play against monsters to get exactly. paydays. To get paydays, you know, and you don't, even amongst mid-major, you know, teams at Division One, you don't see, you don't have to, you don't see Northern Iowa's, um, you don't see, you know, the Southern Illinois or the Southern Missouri's, Southwestern Missouri's have to deal with that. You know, you see HBCUs have to deal with that because they have to be very cognizant of how they fund programs. And that has everything to do with the support that isn't there. So, you know, and I mean, from an athletic standpoint, it's even more of a testament to how talented some, you know, a lot of these programs are in terms of coaches in terms of um, departments that have had to do a lot more with a lot less. Ooh, we, um, we got real deep. But because you're here and because we're talking about basketball, <laughs> we have a segment on the podcast where myself, T.P. and Marlo, we call it the disrespect segment. <laughs> wow. Uh-oh. <laughs> Disrespect. Okay. So, uh oh, is literally what I said when he said it. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh oh, here we go. Let's so, get going. The Milwaukee Bucks have fired their head coach. Mm-hmm. Arguably a top three team. They fired the head coach. And Doc Rivers is rumored to be taking this head coaching job. I thought he now, signed today. This man fails up. We have, we are so close to equality. We are so close to equality because we are now failing up the jobs. I, I want to hate on it. I really want to hate on it. I, I, I'll just say this, man. When we're <laughs> when we when we see with Doc Rivers is exactly what we see in the SWAC in the H in SWAC football. Folks know exactly what I'm talking about. It's all cosmetic. 
<laughs> I mean, it's all you, cosmetic. I mean, you'll have it, it's just a bigger, it's just a bigger fishbowl. It's <laughs> a bigger fishbowl in terms of the network that exists there, names that exist there, and who gets considered for jobs first. Okay. It, it, you know, it's to me, it's a microcosm of what we see in in other places. Like, and I say, you know, swag foot. I'll use swag football as a perfect example because just go, just go ahead and say recycle coaches. I'll yes, say it for you. Recycle, recycle <laughs> coaches. And I'm I'm extremely happy that Alabama State isn't part of that cycle. He's <laughs> not anymore, mm. but we've seen seen a lot of that, and I mean, it, it's it's sad because sometimes when you see that, it has a direct impact on the product on the field in terms of you know the diversity of offenses that we see, for example. Um, my you know my colleague BJ BJ Jones on one of our shows put it really really good you know put it succinctly it's like when we were talking about how offenses look the same it's like it's a cookie it's a cookie cutter league in terms of um you know monkey see monkey do mm-hmm. and that has a lot to do with the fact that you got a lot of the same coaches from a lot that chew a lot of the same turf that have share a lot of the same concepts when it comes to what their idea of a football product either on either side of the ball can be. Now I'll say that the conference has gotten a lot better about it than it has been in the past. Um, particularly after Florida A&M and Bethune came to the conference. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where it's like, all right, man, we've seen this, we've seen this movie before. And I look at Doc, and I love Doc. I have no qualms with Doc Rivers at all. I think that dude's a great ambassador for for basketball in general. The dude's class class act. However, at some ambassadors point, belong in embassies. They don't belong coaching on the sideline. Yeah, like I, I just, I, like. I just want to take a moment of silence, you know, for the young man that lost his job because they didn't play good enough defense. Like, y'all won the game but gave up 123. You're fired. Damian Lillard is your point guard. (laughs) He ain't played defense since he's been in the league. Y'all went out and got him. He didn't even make that choice. Yeah, I don't don't get that. I I think – I mean, as a native Washingtonian, I've had to watch the futility of my home city team, um, the Wizards, who, ironically, Wes Unseld is out. Um, He just brought the topic up on its own. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, I I mean, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of over, you know, Pro organizations making snap judgments about coaches, um, particularly when it comes to basketball, because it's like, yo, um, all right, you knew we, you knew what you were getting into when you hired this guy. I, I like I said, I can look at my own franchise, you know, my own home city, and all the cast that you could have hired, all the cast that you could have went to the college ranks and got. 
um, that might have brought something a little bit more innovative. Um, you hired, and, and don't get me wrong, West Unsell is a legacy. You know, anybody that's familiar with the Unsell name when it comes to Washington, mm-hmm. what are you going? You know, you're not going to, you're, you're not going to crap, you're not going to crap me. Yeah, but, we know Wes. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like you knew this wasn't working. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, especially when you decided to, um, when you decided to unload, start to unload contracts and, you know, you got rid of uh, probably one of the most iconic guards that the city has seen in a long time, Brad Beal. You know, it's, yeah, man, it, that's, that's that. That's the same level as seeing what's going on with Doc Rivers in Milwaukee to me. Because I think, they, I think they did Bradley Beal a favor. I think after so yeah. many years of mediocrity, it was it was time to just let him go. Because he he had dealt with so much. He's playing with John Wall. That was a terrible match. Like 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 this is the same thing we saw with Damian Lee and C.J. McCullough out in Portland. You cannot have two combo guards trying to run an offense it will never work i absolutely agree i think i think in in the in terms of the wizards um ross i'll just put it like this after years of futility watching the wizards attempt roster construction um they've never been good at it they the last quality roster they had was when uh Chris Weber, Juwan Howard, Gilbert, and those guys were on that roster. All of the Rasheed, Rasheed Wallace, all of those guys were on the roster at the same time. Yeah. And that was a very long time ago. <laughs> I mean, it, it it's it's amazing the talent that was on that roster that went to other places in the league and flourished. So, you know, the track record of Washington, D.C., Wizards futility. I can't call them the bullets because the bullets at least have some sort of, at some point, have some sort of su- success attached to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. The futility, the track record of futility in terms of roster construction there is is, is long and embedded. And hey, hey, Herbert, do you have any kids? Yes, I, I have a daughter. What have your kids taught you more than anything in life? Wow, that's a good question. Um, my little mini hacker of a daughter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the one thing that I've 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 learned from Kendall is that she absorbs just about everything that her dad does. Mm-hmm. She's very observant, um, and that I think that's indicative of kids of this generation in general. They they observe everything. And not only do they observe, they absorb and really assimil- assimilate knowledge a, a what, lot faster than well, past generations. What has um, she taught you personally? Like, what do you feel that you have more of now that you have kids? Oh, vigilance. <laughs> I, think, I think vigilance is the, is the key there. Uh, and that's not the same thing. My, my, I mean, Kendall has been to me, she's been a model kid. Um, yeah. You know, my daughter is is a, is a straight A student except for math, and that's because she just hates math. She doesn't, you know, she does she does the work, and when she puts the work in, it comes easy to her. 
When it doesn't, she just likes, okay, I don't want to do this. So it's it's one of those things where being able to show her a really good work ethic is something that drives me to do what I do on a regular basis. Like for me, my day job, I'm a, you know, I'm an IT professional. So I've been I've been in the IT industry going on 30 years now, um, including military service. So it's you know, that structure has provided me, you know, a lot. And that, that just touched my heart. That just yeah. I, I'm a program by trade. He's, he's an IT guy too. <laughs> yeah, see, I mean, yeah, you know. So it's like, man, I, I mean, I started out, you know, as a generalist and you know, now I, you know, I manage a team of developers. So it's like, yeah. um, it, it, it's, it, you, if you know, you know, you, and especially if you, you know, pretty much done uh, everything that's, every job that's ever been required of you. Um, as it pertains to my kid, you know, I look at her and how she assimilates technology, just, you know, like she assimilates technology, like, like breathing. And oh man, it's amazing it, to watch. Yeah. And in comparison, you know, like my mom, my mom thinks that her eldest son is like built in tech support. So it's like something happens with a television, something happens with a computer. You know, I'm on I'm on speed. She's on speed dial and she calls me. You know, I mean, I could be in the middle of a meeting. I'll get a call from my mom about, okay, my her email. So it's one of those things where you have a really good appreciation of the potential that your kids have, even in comparison to yourself. Um, and I look at my daughter and I see, I see the world, I see a world of potential, you know, and I see her being able to exist in spaces, you know, as she gets older that I can only dream about existing. Bro, you know, and, it I, could and be, I think it's bro. a, I think it's a beautiful thing that you have your hands in the technology field because you look at the age and where we're going if you're not technically inclined you are oh, yeah. not going to be successful going into the next stage you know because we 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 came when there was no cell phones we didn't have internet you know growing up as kids we had to play outside and get it out the mud man look, our my- kids today <laughs> you know what i mean it's it's a totally different world Man, look, my my family is from Southern Virginia. Okay, deep Southern Virginia. Um, small town, a small town called Emporia and a small town called Lawrenceville, where St. Paul's College used to be at. And needless to say, both of my folks are old school. Meaning that, okay, you know, you're going to go to a trade college instead of going to college type old school. Mm-hmm. So um being able to see the difference between that dynamic growing up and seeing the complete opposite now you know being being a parent and being a mentor to younger younger kids um it's eye opening you know me personally i think um it's definitely really important that technology is a part of that for our kids. I mean, let's be honest. If you're if you're not technology inclined in today's job market, whether you're in a tech field or not, right. um, you're going to go the way of the dodo pretty quick. So it's 
um, you know, it's always something for me because, you know, as having that background, I'm always used to learning. I'm always used to assimilating new skills. Um, that's just, you know, par for the course, but it's not like that for everybody. And it's something that I've always I consistently impart to my daughter because it comes so easy for her, you know, in terms of learning new things. And it's not necessarily just, you know, translates to teenagers being on cell phones all the time or anything like that. Even though that's part of it, you're absorbing technology by osmosis at that point. But it's understanding the importance of technology culturally for us. Because for Black folk in particular, you know, it's been a gateway for a lot of us. You know, it's been a gateway to be able to make decisions for families that you wouldn't ordinarily ordinarily be able to make, make a living, you know, increase your standard of living. Um, it, it's crazy because when I came out of school, I came out of Alabama State, I was a pre-med major, but I did websites on the side. Wait and, a minute. Hold on. This man, stop taking my resume. That is literally <laughs> my resume. Yeah, I was a pre-med major. And, um, you know, you know, got out of school, took some time off, decided, you know, uh, my father decided I was idling a little bit. So he's like, you got a choice. You can finish school out at Howard, but you're paying your own bills or you can go down and enlist. And of course, I wasn't really happy with the enlistment part. <laughs> but, you know, we we ended up coming to a consensus and I went down there and I wouldn't trade it for the world. I mean, I, you know, I, I went in as an information technology specialist in the Navy, one of the first ones, IT, you know, one of the first classes of ITs to go in. Nice. And, you know, that's why I got my foundation for my career. And I've been in the career ever since. It's. Well, we thank you for your service. Absolutely. I, 100. Yeah. I, I mean, you're talking to a fellow veteran. I served 11 years in the Air Force as a, F-16 mechanic. Oh, man. Air Force, dude. I got stories about y'all. Hey, we'll say that for Man, look, I was stationed in, in and uh, I was stationed, I was doing, I did carrier, carrier duty the majority of the time that I was in, and I was stationed in Norfolk, Virginia, um, Langley, Langley Air Force Base. Langley right Air Force Force. Base. Yeah, so we Air did a Force. lot we did a lot of training with you guys. I'll just say that going on base at Langley and seeing how the Air Force folks lived in comparison to us was just like, yo, what am I doing? <laughs> it's like, am I living right? I mean, what, what's that? What's that about? But the Air Force, you know, I mean, it, it it says a lot about. Again, you know, it's funny that we're talking about technology because. The reliance of te on technology in that branch of service in the Navy and the Air Force says a lot about the quality of people that you have to have. And that's a that's a really good correlation to have when it comes to um, conversations we're having tonight, for example. Um, technology and how we um, see HBCU athletics, for example, is huge. Um, so... 
Sir, I'm going to interrupt you real quick because we hit on a very important topic. Have you seen HBCU Go? Yes, I have. I've seen HBCU Go. I've seen HBCU Plus. Um, I've also seen a ton of other platforms, um, school-affiliated and non-school-affiliated, that people have. And so, HBCU Go is a confusing model to me based on what they were purporting to offer to the SWAC and other HBCUs. Mm. Because of the platform that it's on, and I I like to do research. So I watched the FAMU BCC game the other night on HBCU uh, Go. <clears throat> Not a single Fortune 500 commercial. Not a single commercial at all. So I'm confused as to how they were going to offer anything to anyone if there is no revenue model because Roku doesn't apparently allow any advertising outside of the shows that you are already offering. I think that's a really, I think that's a really good observation. Um, I think one of the things with HBCU Go is that even though um, Roku is a primary platform for them, uh, there are other streaming platforms that do have revenue. Like, for example, um, if you watched HBCU Go, you know some of their stuff is subsidized at re you know on regional networks. Like, for example, um, SIAC and CIAA games are are you know subsidized here in the DC metro area by Monumental. You know, if you got a cable package and you got Monumental, um, you're seeing those games. You're seeing HBCU Go products. The Grio does the same thing um, for conference for conference play for SIAC and CIAA Bowl and SWAC Bowl. Um, and now I wouldn't don't quote me on this. This is something that you probably have to do the research on, but I'm pretty sure that there are other regional deals in place where advertising is a part of that platform. That being said, I think HBCU Go and some of the other platforms have, how can I put this? They have a very unique perspective in terms of how to go about convincing our conferences to invest in the product more. And I, I say that um, because when we really look at it, we look at ESPN and how much of our content that they've been able to monopolize. Um, to me, that is kind of it's it's kind of indicative of where we where we're at. I think the only conference that has a a really solid model in place in terms of monetizing their own content is probably CIAA. If you've seen the CIAA network, um, they embarked on that about two years ago where they created their own network and it's a, it's a one-stop shop essentially for, um, you know, for all the schools in the conference. And I mean, if I were, if I were to use the PWI comparison, I'd probably use the Big Ten. Have you ever seen the Big Ten interface? All the schools are there, you know, um, there are certain things that games that are out of market or games that aren't covered by any of the major networks are covered. 
um, you know, they're able to centralize all that stuff on their own platform and, you know, you can get a monthly pass or whatever. Um, hmm. you, mean, you mean a monthly pass in one place and not have to pay $120 to see all the schools in the yeah, conference? Yeah, because that's crazy. Exactly. And I think, I, I mean, we've had this debate yeah, uh, on our, on my show, on the you know HBC Who's Weekly show, we just you know started that show. We you know me and Liv, you know one of our colleagues, were just talking about this offline, and it's like okay, well, um, folks are complaining about schools going behind paywalls and monetizing their own content. I can dig it, but I can also understand the other side of it if the conference itself doesn't really have. How can I put this delicately? <laughs> strong leadership. I, I've been saying it. Strong yeah, leadership. Strong, strong leadership. <laughs> um, and you know, I, you know, my boy Scotty. You know, he kind of, he kind of specializes. You know, my boy on script. He kind of specializes mm -hmm. in, in in that stuff. But I really, I look at the model that the SWAC has um, to a lesser extent. The MEAC, although I think the MEAC is a little bit more forward thinking in terms of what they're trying to do, but don't quote me on that yet because we really haven't seen the, the platform for it yet. Um, being able to centralize your own content, or at least the content that you don't, you know, you haven't already promised to another entity yet, is important, and particularly for HBCUs. And we're not just talking about athletics. We're talking about the culture around athletics. We're talking about bands. We're talking about all sorts of stuff that collectively make HBCU athletics an extremely unique product. Even for folks that are outside of the, the diaspora, so to speak. So, you know, I think when we look at conferences like that and how they approach those things, yeah, leadership has a lot to do. And this is not, you know, anybody taking a swipe at HBC leadership or anything like that. But at the same, in the same vein, you have to be able to recognize that one, like we said earlier, technology is a big part of this landscape. Two, that technology is offering you different and more creative ways to monetize your content. Um, I know prior to looking at using Bama State as an example, prior to Bama State creating their own network and you know starting to subsidize their own games behind the paywall, you know they they were broadcasting games on on YouTube, mm -hmm. games that were covered by ESPN, and a lot of conferences, a lot of individual programs are doing that. Um, I look at Norfolk State, you know, they've had their own network for a lot of their games that they covered before they entered in with the deal with HBCU Plus, which is another entity. I think Urban Edge is doing a really good job of offering a more sustainable model. Um, you look at HBCU Plus, although, you know, the lineup of schools that, that are entering partnership with them are you know, are smaller schools, smaller conferences, but I think personally they have the right idea because they're willing to invest in those schools and give them a cut of revenue. So 
you know, I, I, you know, the fact that you have some division one schools that have invested in the product, you know, Grambling famously has gone against the SWAC <laughs> and that's still litigated. That's still being litigated. So, I mean, it's a, again, you know, it, when it really boils down to it, it boils down to the product itself. Being able to have that platform, you know, is important because that's where all your development is going to happen at. Um, you look at the CIAA platform product. First year they got it. You know, folks were talking about the broadcast quality of certain schools, whatever. Then they turned around and made really heavy investment. And overnight, that stuff is improved um, per school. And it has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, the conference was willing to invest into that platform and allow schools to invest into it. You know, so and it's starting to really, I, I don't think we really scratched the surface of what that means for the CIAA. And I think it's a model that other conferences are gonna follow. Uh, I think the C I think the Gulf Coast Athletic Conference, if I'm not mistaken, they're taking a look at our platform like that. Yeah. Um so yeah, it's you know, to me, part of you know, part of the challenge in covering HBCU athletics and talking about these topics is trying to walk in the tight line of getting administrators and you know folks in leadership positions to look at these you know look at the landscape look at the ecosystem a little bit more holistic you know particularly as it relates to technology as it relates to the deals business deals that we create and we step into um with entities like that to monetize our content so yeah, I like your choice of words, the things that we step into, because for some reason, we like to step into the the mess of exposure coins, and it does not ever benefit us. We've seen the mothership improve three parts of their network, and we've benefited none. Yeah, exposure. I'll preface this by saying that exposure is always going to be good to an extent. That extent has everything to do with how we how we use that exposure. So for example, you know, having Alabama State and North Carolina Central in the Orange Blossom Classic is great. Exposure. Right. Now how great it is depends on marketing, depends on, you know, the product on the field, which I think is going to be an awesome game, by the way. Um, and it depends on how both administrations maximize the opportunity for exposure. So, you know, it's the same thing with anything. It's like I look at the SWAC and, you know, people, you know, we talk a lot about how loyal our fan bases are, and particularly when it comes to HBCU football, we talk about, you know, if, you know, we talk about attendance. You know, if you look at FCS, um, you know, SWAC schools have been at the forefront of attendance. You know, attendance statistics in FCS ball for a long time, mm -hmm. and I think people need to really understand that that loyalty 
doesn't just come from the product on the field. And that's not a knock on the product of the field. It has everything to do with the culture and, you know, the overall connectedness of what the HBCU product is. So, you know, a lot of times, man, we, we we have a tendency to make comparisons to, you know, between HBCUs and say Power Five programs or Group of Five programs, and there's not really a comparison to be made there because the cultures are different. You know, you might go to a, a Texas Longhorn game, or you might go to an LSU game and see a specific type of culture, but yeah, it's come completely different than going across the going across the tracks and going to a Southern University Jackson State game. I'll, no. I'll, I'll, I'll go. Really you. agree because I've been to a TSU game, I've been to an A&M game, and I've been to a Longhorn game. And let me tell you, there's a and Prairie View A&M. Yeah. Uh, out of those four schools, I'm gonna tell you which one I had the most fun at. It was the TSU game. Yeah, you know, and I mean, like I said, I, me personally, man, I've been to a, I've been to an Iron Bowl, and there's no way in hell that I would trade a, a Magic City Classic for an Iron. Uh, y- y'all already know how I feel. Like Florida Classic, uh, Florida, Florida State. I'm I'm gonna be at the Classic every time. Yeah. But I will also say this: Fortune 500 companies know what fan base has the largest discretionary spending. That's why small businesses cannot do a national ad campaign, and I beat this horse till it was dead because. The each each individual broadcast is saturated. I can get into an SEC broadcast. Why I can't get into an Orange Blossom Classic? Why I can't get into a Florida Classic? As a small business, I should be able to get my way into, but I can't because those particular broadcasts and streams are saturated with Fortune 500 or your top companies. Yeah. They know where the money is and they follow it. I just at some point I wish us I wish we would recognize that hey, if they know we need to know. Yeah, and I think that's a I think that's a very important point, um, and I think that has everything to do with the type of leadership that you hire, and not only the type of leadership that you hire, but the type of strategic vision that that leadership comes up with in terms of recognizing what's valuable about the product that you got. In this case, the product is HBCU Revenue Athletics and the culture around HBCU Revenue Athletics or HBCU Athletics in general. Um, You know, we've talked a lot about, um, well, at least, you know, in my my experience being in this space, um, I've had the opportunity to interact on a couple of levels. You know, I do, you know, I do contributor work for Fansided, for Busting Brackets, for Hoops. Um, you know, I've been a contributor for HBCU Sports, uh, for HBCU Digital Network. Um, and the things that I've run into, you know, in that media capacity and other environments, when we, you know, when we see that HBCU, you know, being an HBCU product in those environments is they the people that recognize HBCU connectedness, they know what that's about, you know, and they may not let on, um, 
good example of this. I was just covering a, covering a University of Maryland game against Purdue uh, for a good friend of mine. Um, uh, co- uh, MTC with Mook. He's a he's an area coach, and um, I was covering you know covering a game for him, and I was sitting in you know I was doing press you know, press stuff for for that game, and just observing who was at the game in press capacity, and there wasn't there wasn't a single entity outside of Maryland athletics and regular press that was there and Maryland athletics were is practically all students all students doing interns doing the broadcast you know part of the broadcast team everything from press you know from start of the game to pre, in the press conferences and that says a lot about the resources that are available to those students to pursue those things now, in comparison, go check out an HBC basketball game and see who's part of that broadcast team. See who's part of that production team that puts together the, those games. How many students do you have there? I don't think I've seen a whole bunch. Yeah, I think it varies from program to program. I know, speaking for Alabama State, they've just started doing a lot, you know, they've had a multimedia, you know, multimedia department, communications department that's, you know, dedicated a lot of time to that, but you very rarely see it. And I think that has a, a great deal to do with resources and the availability of resources to be able to allocate to something. Because a lot of times you, you know, you look at the jobs, the multiple hats that you normally have to do in, in that capacity in athletics. Like, for example, um, let's take the SID position, for example. How many times have you run into places where the SID is wearing multiple hats, not necessarily just being an SID? I mean, it's it's pretty common in the HBC service. And again, that has a lot to do with some of what we talked about tonight, which is, you know, the availability of resources and the availability to allocate those resources effectively. So, you know, I I look at the landscape now and like I said, I, I couldn't be happier to be part of it because, um, being able to offer perspectives, you know, on, you know, in that environment to people that are just as passionate about, you know, seeing, seeing the product flourish and succeed as I am. It's a, it's a really dope thing. You know, um, like I said, the, the new show for HBC Hoops Weekly, we just did our first episode this past Friday. We got another, we got another banger of an episode tomorrow night. Uh, that's going to be pretty heavy because there was a lot of chaos this past week. <laughs> so, mm. um, for both men's and women's. So, um, but yeah, that, and I think that's the other thing too is that there are there's an entire generation of content creators and contributors and and folks in HBC media spaces that are 
not only are they willing to do the things necessary to change the landscape, but they're putting pressure on conferences, on leadership to start looking at things with a fresh set of eyes. And I am not, like I tell people all the time, this is not primarily HBCU podcast, but ever since I stood my toe on that issue, I'm going to be loud. I'm going to be the fat mouth in the room every time because quite frankly, enough is enough. Yeah, and I think um, me personally, I, I think a lot of what we've seen over the last two years, and this is just a, a general observation in terms of what HBCU athletics and the culture around it has kind of um, experienced, you know, whether it's Deion Sanders' tenure at Jackson State, um, you know, the whole thing. Don't yeah. say that name. Oh, man. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I've, made a, I've made a point of not mentioning him a lot, <laughs> you know, especially as a Bama State guy. But to be um, fair, to be fair, I get the same reaction every time somebody mentioned Ed Reed. Like, that's an ibis y'all can put back in the can somewhere, anywhere. Like, yeah. let him go try and be a Milwaukee Bucks coach anywhere, but keep him away from anything HBCU. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I think the good thing about that whole stretch is that I think um, a lot of our administrations have gotten that celebrity bug, quote unquote, out of their system, Thank you. so to speak. Um, at least I would hope so. Um, I, you know, and not to get too deep on that topic, because, yeah, I, I really don't want to talk about TNO, <laughs> but... I'll just say covering his tenure from start to finish, finish um, it was a real eye-opener. It was a real eye-opener in the way that media changed around his presence there, HBCU media. It was a real eye-opener in terms of how, what fans chose to see and what they chose not to see. Mm -hmm. Um. It was a real, um, it's a real case study in how the good, how the good and bad media, bad of media work together. And it's, um, you know, it's really, it was really the observations that I got from some of my peers, uh, some, some, some mentors like, you know, uh, Dr. Cavill, um, you know, he pointed some stuff out to me during this whole, during that whole process, like, yeah, wow. Okay, I got you. <laughs> so, I mean, I just think that a lot of times, man, we we take the organic nature of what our place in that landscape is for granted. And um, that whole ordeal with him and others really put that to the test a lot. You know, so, yeah, I, I feel you're paying on the whole Ed Reed thing. It's just, that was, you know, Optically, anytime you have stuff like that happen, it's always going to be, you know, a no-win situation from an optics perspective. Um, it's just a matter of how quickly you recover from. It. You know, so it's uh, in terms of Bethune, I'm glad they they recovered from it somewhat. You know, or at least they let they they let it 
die when they were supposed to let it die. Um, I mean, your day off. Yeah. So, well, dude. Oh God! I, I just say without getting too far, too far into that, I, I have my own opinions, man. It's uh, yeah, yeah no, no, no. I I I went yeah, on long I, I rants, mean, yeah, long dude. rants about that. Um, I just, every I just week. Think, <laughs> yeah, ahead. I just say, dude, if that's a regular job, then you're you're not even hearing from that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so that's just a, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. But I think um. You know, as far as the the topics tonight, though, this is this is dope. This is a really dope conversation, man. Absolutely, um, man. We definitely appreciate you joining us. Yep, every week. So every week great, we have great insight. Great insight. Yeah, every week we have we end the podcast with our weekly thoughts. Um, as a guest, sir, you are more than welcome to go first. Well, I would be remiss to say that um, first, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, it you know being able again I'm very humbled by being in this space and being able to um, share my views and and share my perspectives on sport on on HBCU athletics and the culture around it. Um, I'm pretty sure those of y'all already know. You know I'm part of the HBCU nightly crew. You know I've got content pretty much all over the place these days now. <laughs> so. You know, if it's not HBCU Digital Network, if it's not HBCU Sports, where I have content, written content, um, if it's not fan-sided, busted brackets, where I have content, um, just look for me, man. Look for me on this on this new show. I, I mean, the crew that we got there with Liv and, and Melvin from HBCU Pass and my boy Coach Payne, so I hope he's going to be on the show this week. Um, if you really dig college basketball, HBCU hoops, Check us out, man, because it, it's a platform that we've dedicated to covering, you know, HBC basketball. It, it's long overdue. And um, the talent at this level in mid-major basketball, at D1 and D2 and NIA, is, it's always been there and it deserves to be showcased. So um, just check us out, man. And, you know, just keep on supporting us. That's that's the biggest thing, man. We're, we, we're blessed to be able to get it. Beautiful. Well, I I know we didn't hear a lot from Marlo tonight, and I didn't get a chance to talk about his books like I wanted to. But Marlo, <laughs> do you have anything for us this week? Go Bucks! Oh man, <laughs> go Bucks! <laughs> well, I'm, I'm gonna let TP go last because his his team had the longest run in the playoffs. Um, I want to say as as. I said it on Twitter, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it now. You cannot make me believe there is not a conspiracy at the ACC offices. Because nowhere else in the world does the athletic director, the leader of the playoff committee team get spared an entire season. So now I got to hope they go undefeated so we can see them in the ACC championship game. And dear Lord, if you could grant me this one wish, I will be on Mike Norville's ass the entire season about hanging 120 points on North Carolina State. They asked for this ass whooping. They deserve this ass whooping. 
This is what needs to happen for all to be right in the world. That's all I got, y'all. That's that's all I got. TP. That's funny. <laughs> that's hilarious. I'm gonna just take this time to, you know, raise my hand to D'Amico Ryan's and the job that he's done with my Houston Texans. Before the season started, nobody gave us a chance. We didn't have a hope and a wish. But at the end of the day, when it was all said and done, we competed with the best team in football for two and a half quarters, had a great chance of winning that game. Now, he's building something special. And if you talk to any player in that locker room, the one thing they're going to tell you is D'Amico got their back. Now, when you have a coach that believes in you and you believe in him, you will run through a brick wall for that man. And the Texans have done that. Going forward, we got $72 million in cap, the 23rd overall pick, players coming back from injury, players getting better second year, third year. I'm looking forward to seeing Nico Collins and Tank Dale, maybe another addition. Hopefully, John Mechie gets better. I just see bright things for the future of the Houston Texans organization. And I truly believe that C.J. Stroud will bring us a ring before it's all said and done. That's something we ain't never experienced, and I want to experience it in my life. I get to see these other fans and teams hold up the Lombardi and celebrate. I want to know what that feel like. That's all I'm saying. I want to know what it feels like to have my hometown team win it all. And I think Stroud gives us the best chance. (laughs) Hey, Marlo, you had your turn. <laughs> but yeah. I just I, I I'm just looking forward to the future, man. It was a great season. So hats off to D'Amico and the job he's done, and it's time to keep pushing. Go Texans. Oh man, ladies and gentlemen, again, thank you oh, for awesome. coming out. Like when thank they win in oh, Tampa. Man, like it. the only I'm, team in history to do it. That was oh, beautiful. Are you, are you done? You good? You got it all out your system. It came down my eye. When you know Baker Mayfield still y'all quarterback, right? Yeah. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming out. Appreciate it. Same time, same back channel next week. Mr. Stewart, thank you. Thank you so thank you, much. Sir. The information Don't is always me. great. We'd love to get other voices onto the podcast. For everybody mm-hmm. on the podcast, we are out. It was a blast, man. Thank you, guys.